Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. You ever wonder how the folks at Antiques Roadshow on PBS figure out what makes it on the air? And what are some uncommon reactions they see? I ha- I've seen some people not in Middletown, Connecticut. You were good. Um, I've seen <laughs> I've seen some people want to debate with us whether or not the appraiser was right. And what's it like finding out your family heirloom is worth a lot of money? Now that I know how valuable it is, I'm afraid to wear it out. I mean, it's in a safety deposit box now, which is kind of sad. Um. <laughs> Plus, find out what it was like for the appraiser to tell her just how much money it was worth. It's like Christmas, delivering news like that to someone, and I didn't have to spend any money for it. <laughs> just my time. <laughs> and come with me to Collinsville to get my very weird typewriters appraised. Of the lower Wow, case. that really is cool. See, this Definitely. is the stuff you want to hear from I've the guy who's looking at I've never seen that before. You've never seen this before. Nope. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're diving into the dusty, sometimes lucrative world of antiquing. See, I love old typewriters. I had one growing up, and it felt so satisfying. When I'd write, it was like my fingers were playing a drum kit. Each cha-chunk of the keys was different, you know? Like the, the letters were snares, the shift key a tom, and that space bar was totally the bass drum. And that little ding when it reached the end of each line, uh, that was the sweetest sound, like the most gentle hi-hat. Writing was a multi-sensory experience on those things, not like the finger twitching we all do today. So I started collecting old typewriters. Anything that looked cool, I bought. Most of them were under 20 bucks at various thrift stores and antique shops, but a few were close to 100 bucks on eBay. But over the years, I've culled my collection down to just two of my weirdest, coolest typewriters. And I wanted to know how much these things may be worth. So at the end of the show, you'll be with me as I bring these extraordinary machines to a local antique store to get evaluated. But before we get there, let's start with a PBS reality show that made appraisals of antiques, well, freaking riveting. Antiques Roadshow is a BBC production that began in 1979, but our friends at WGBH began taping the American version in 1996. And they recently swung through Connecticut at the Wadsworth Mansion in Middletown. You'll meet a woman from that taping, Georgiana. She inherited a Chanel cuff with a powerful history in the entertainment world and, spoiler, a very high price tag. And you'll hear my conversation with Laura Woolley, who appraises properties connected to celebrities. She had the enviable task of informing Georgiana how much that cuff would go for at auction, at least. But who better to kick things off than Marsha Bemko? She's the executive producer of PBS's Antiques Roadshow, and she's been a part of that team since 1999. 
With upwards of 3,000 people attending a taping, up to two items each, I wanted to know what is it about a guest or the thing they're getting appraised that makes it on the air. The appraiser pitches the item and tells you why it's worth taping it. And so based on that pitch, you will be interested or not. I then will talk to the guest. Depending upon the appraiser may not convince me, and then I'm not so interested in the guest anymore is <laughs> the honest answer. But the next interview is with the guest. That's my process. All of us pick a little different. And then I just want to know, what do you know about it? I'm not looking for I know nothing. Not looking for that because I love a conversation when they know something or when they think they know something and they're wrong, it's even better. But <laughs> but I, I'm not looking for I know nothing because then you'll say, what you pay? And they say they paid $2,000. Like, how do you pay $2,000 you know nothing for? So we're really looking for the truth there. I just love somebody who's hungry for information. They come in with something that's a little different and whatever the answer is, they want to get it. What makes a guest appealing like that? It's just an openness. And you all, an audience out there listening has the same instincts I do, right? All of you listening, when you're watching the show, you like certain people better than others too. It's just human, human nature. And of our appraisers, certain Appraisers are better performers than others. But what you really need on our set, there are people who understand what they're looking at. And then we encourage them to the best performance they can give. (laughs) To being truly themselves. Yeah, because I think what's really interesting is when they're truly themselves and they're geeky and into it, it's really appealing. You know, even when I send an email for a quick question, I get back five paragraphs explaining why. I love that. It's so endearing. They're really geeks in love with what they do, and they want to make sure you learn it all. And if we didn't edit the appraisals, I don't know if the show would be as popular. (laughs) They just want to make sure you learn it all. So we get it down to about three minutes of learning. (laughs) Now, you must see a whole rainbow of emotions when you tape shows. Some people are elated. Some people are crushed. How have you seen people deal with their emotions? And has there ever been somebody who really surprised you? So let's go with the happy news. <laughs> React to the happy news because that's the fun one to talk about. You've seen people, they have a friend on set with them who you can't see in the camera range of the set. And they're turning to talk to their mother, their sister, their wife, whatever, their husband, just to, to have that, can you believe it moment? That's genuine. We, we leave that in sometimes for you to see it because it's like they, they just can't believe it. And... When it comes to bad news, most people are good sports about it. I haven't seen anybody cry. I've seen some people, not in Middletown, Connecticut, you were good. (laughs) Um, I've seen seen some people want to debate with us whether or not the appraiser was right. And so what we do at Antiques Roadshow is called a verbal approximation of value. That's the technical term for it. And I always tell them, go get an appraisal. Get another opinion because every appraiser you're talking to is giving you an opinion. That's why people will get more than one. Although you're not going to get five at Roadshow. (laughs) (laughs) But, you you know, it's a hard thing to debate with somebody who is convinced that we're wrong. And maybe we are, but not usually. But they may need to hear it from somebody else, too. What is it do you think your audience is more attracted to? The joyfulness or the letdown? You know, go onto our social media and analyze it for me. <laughs> you really don't. 
don't know. They seem to love the pain and they seem to love the pleasure. I think they like both. I think they are joyful when others say, oh, can you believe it? And, you know, serves them right kind of too. But um, the thing with the disappointing ones is, is I think people are gleeful it's not them too, right? Is some of that going on in the back of their minds? But I really don't know. Really not sure. I think it's kind of equal. Which probably may be a part of why this show is so long lasting and so beloved and so one of a kind. I mean, Antiques Roadshow, it really is a part of pop culture at this point. It's been name dropped in Modern Family, Family Guy, Jeopardy, Frasier. And I am 100% sure that I can find a few songs going out of these segments that mention Antiques Roadshow. What else do you think goes into the reason why people are so enthralled with this show, so connected to this show for so long? It's smart reality television. It is one of our country's first reality television shows. We really don't know what's coming. And that reality television, it's very real. It's a very real thing. And when you're on set there, even with the pre-picked stuff, the excitement is palpable. It's, it's contagious, like COVID, only it's good. Only it's good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and there's no vaccine for it. But no vaccine. Don't even want one. It feels it's that kind. It doesn't get old. All of us, most of my staff have been doing the show for as long as I have. It's addictive. The tour is an addictive thing. And for the lucky hundred or so who came to the set that day from Connecticut or applied and got into Connecticut, many from Connecticut, probably most from Connecticut. I think they felt it that day, too. After all the decades that you've been in television and the many seasons of Antiques Roadshow, if you could go back to yourself at season four when you first started and um, give yourself a little bit of advice, what would that be? That's a really good question. Even though back then there was no such thing as a hashtag, I'd say hashtag girl power. No matter how anybody treats you, you can succeed. And there's uh, not a woman listening to this who doesn't understand what I just said or hasn't felt what I just said. And even as executive producer, occasionally it still happens to me. So um, hashtag girl power, hashtag power to our, all of us having our dignity and individuality. And I was young enough not to understand. You know, it would make me insecure, maybe. And I would just tell myself, relax. You're smart. You can do a good job. Hashtag girl power. You can succeed. And it doesn't matter how you look, what you are, who you are that way. It matters what's in here, up in the noggin, and doing good, hard work. You're worth it, babe. You can do it. Just be the best you can be, and you will succeed. Well, Marsha Bemko, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. When we get back. I immediately knew how, how many jewelry people would just be freaking out to, to find this. Just knowing that other people are taking so much pleasure in seeing that cuff makes me feel wonderful. We meet one woman who went to Antiques Roadshow with what turned out to be a very valuable piece of jewelry. And you'll hear about what it was like for the appraiser who got to tell her some very good news. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Maybe, Jesus, who knows what the future will hold.
This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, the thrill, the excitement, the drama of antique appraisals. Later, you'll come with me to an antique store in Collinsville, Connecticut, to see what two of my very strange typewriters might be worth. But right now, we're riveted by the PBS series Antiques Roadshow and the people who make it so special. You know how it works. You bring in something unique, something uncommon, something that, well, seems like it might be worth the investment of standing in line for hours to get the thing appraised at Antiques Roadshow. Your mind is racing. Is this thing worth a thousand times what you think? And is your mind about to be blown? Or is it a total fake? And you're about to embarrass yourself on national television. Or is it worth exactly what you think it's worth? But now you know the bigger story around it. What exactly are you expecting to learn here? There's a lot going on for you, standing in that line. Here's the story of one of those people. We're only using Georgiana's first name because, well, the Chanel cuff that she brought on the show turned out to be worth a lot of money. But the value of the thing isn't nearly as compelling as the story behind it. So I asked her to tell me why she thought to bring it to Antiques Roadshow. My father really wanted me to take the cuff on Antiques Roadshow. And it's a special piece because... The actress Helen Hayes is my great, great aunt, and she gave it to my mother, and my mother gave it to me, and it's a family heirloom, and it's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I mean, we are on the radio, so if you could describe this cuff, would you, please? (laughs) Well, I, I can describe it accurately now because I've been told, given the details about it, uh, before I would have just said it's a big hunk of white with some colored things on it but it is a a cuff bracelet with a clasp it's very large and heavy it's made of sterling silver and 18 karat gold and it has multiple colorful gemstones everything from amethyst to diamond to ruby to sapphire emerald it's a glorious glorious piece of jewelry and i have to say i know nothing about jewelry I bought my wedding ring in the Baltimore airport for $30. <laughs> so I, I, I like pretty things like everybody, but I had no idea that it was a valuable piece, you know, when I first started investigating it. You grew up with this piece in your life because it belonged to your mother. Can you talk about what your memories are from when you were a kid with this piece? It was really a part of the family. It was something that we, you know, we didn't play with it every day, but it was it was something we were aware of and were comfortable with and really knew nothing about it except it came from Helen Hayes. Kind of a big deal. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so bring me back to the day that you get to the Wadsworth Mansion in Middletown for Antiques Roadshow. You've got this item with you. You're excited. You, what do you think is going to happen realistically? Like, cause you know, I, 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 I've never been on the show, but I bet if I went and I had something that was worth that waiting and paperwork and traveling that I would think like there's either the thing that's big about it is what I think it's worth or just regardless of what it's worth, I've just got to know. So for you, what was it that put you in that line to go through all that? I think the really wonderful thing about Antiques Roadshow is not that you learn the value of items, but you learn the story about items. I'd already at that point had an idea that it was going to be valuable, assuming that the stones were real. 
And I told all my friends and family that there's no number that they could quote that would surprise me given that, but I was wrong. I was very, very wrong. (laughs) I was very surprised. What did you really think it would be worth? (laughs) I had a fairly arbitrary number in my head, about $30,000. I know that Verdura sells those cuffs today and they're uh, 18 karat gold and they're uh, worth well over a hundred thousand dollars, but I didn't think mine was gold. So that was my arbitrary number and it far exceeded my expectations. So talk to me about the, the experience of being with the appraiser who (laughs) it's funny. Sometimes when I see antiques roadshow, I think, I like try to read the appraiser, you know, like I'm watching their face. I'm checking to see if they like, are they excited? Are they holding something back? Or are they like kind of, I hate (laughs) having to get to the end of this one. because I'm going to have like, not that great news. Like, were you reading her? (laughs) I didn't read her very well. I think because she told me afterward that she, she was very excited because I guess they thought that it was going to be costume jewelry. And when they realized that it was genuine, they were very surprised. But she is so sweet. And I'm glad I got Laura. I thought she was wonderful. Laura Woolley. Yeah, we're going to talk with her for this show as well. So what did it feel like when you heard this? Being as rare as as it is from the 1930s and having all real stones, we think a very conservative auction estimate would be at least $100,000 to $150,000. Goodness. Oh, my word. What a treasure. I I guess I was just trying so hard to hold it together. It was just a wonderful feeling to have that cuff recognized, to know that other people were going to see it and were going to be able to enjoy it a little bit too. And I found, I've been looking for a long time for a photograph of Aunt Helen wearing that cuff. And I finally, finally found one online. And it's a picture of her taken in 1939 when she testified before Congress there was a bill that she wanted passed that would allow in 20,000 refugee children Jewish and non-Jewish from Germany in 1939 she appeared before Congress and she was wearing that cuff and I just know that she got up that morning and she thought I want to wear something that makes me look fierce. And she put that cuff on and there it is, photograph of her with Congressman. Uh, and the bill was passed and what a wonderful family legacy. And I had no idea that she did that. I had no idea, but she really was a remarkable woman. She was strong and talented and did a lot of wonderful things in her life. And that makes me very proud. She just totally gave me goosebumps. Um, that's Yeah. So now when you look at this cuff, you know what it's valued at, which I know is, which I feel from what all you're saying is is secondary. It's not unimportant. Like you go through the whole process of Antiques Roadshow for many reasons, but you know, it's, it's estimated value at auction, but you also have this new, more complete picture of what this cuff has been through and who it's touched in so many ways. And so when you look at it now, like, oh, does it feel different? And if so, how, how does it feel different? Well, it still feels very personal to me because it was given to me by my mother who 
has dementia and every day she's slipping away a little bit. Um, and it was something that she loved, but I'm delighted by the fact that other people are seeing it now, you know, that they can watch the antiques roadshow and see it just to have knowing that other people are taking so much pleasure in seeing that cuff makes me feel wonderful. And I know it was the right decision. And my father died two years ago before he could see me on the show. Um, but he would have been so happy. He would have been very, very pleased to know that I had that experience. Do you wear it? You know, I would wear it, but it doesn't fit. And it didn't fit my mother either, which is why it's in such pristine condition. <laughs> I have a friend who told me I should just put a thread through it and wear it around my neck. <laughs> is that an option? I mean, this thing is amazing. Um, well, here's probably the one negative about this whole experience is now that I know how valuable it is, I'm afraid to wear it out. And I, I mean, it's in a safety deposit box now, which is kind of sad. Um, <laughs> so what do you think the future of this thing is going to be? Like, what do you want to, where do you want to see this end up? I, I'm very attached to it, but I did ask my parents, this was two years ago and mom hadn't, hadn't descended so far into dementia. And I asked my parents, well, if I find out it's very valuable, what do you think I should do with it? My father said, hang on to it and sell it if you ever need the money. And my mother said, sell it and buy something nice for yourself. So I have their blessing. I have my mother's blessing as far as selling it. But the truth is, I really don't know what I want to do with it. I mean, it's if I do sell it, it's going to be very hard to part with. Uh, so it's not a decision I've made yet. And I feel that if my mother had known how valuable the cuff was, that she wouldn't have just left it to me. She would have left it to me and my two brothers. Uh, and so I feel that they should have some say in what happens to it as well. So I'm undecided. I'm, I'm undecided. You're a nice sister. <laughs> I hope they know that. <laughs> I know they do the same for me. So, <laughs> Well, Georgiana, what did I miss? Is there anything you want to add to this conversation? I'd love for you to look up that photograph of Aunt Helen. Do you have it? The, in front of Congress. I, I don't have it. I just found it online. Okay. Well, uh, Jessica, just... as you were speaking, sent it. Thank you. Hold on. Let me look at it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. There it is. Yeah. And she's. She looks fierce. She looks. But like she looks she's like she's a... not going to take it. Right. Focus. Right. I think this needs to be printed out, framed. <laughs> wow. Well, Georgiana, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, you're welcome, Kion. Thank you for talking to me. Helen Hayes' picture won't come off my wall Acts like a woman who's ten feet tall No time for Tinseltown she was New York bound There's not a single burnt bulb on Broadway When you visit our website, you can see photos of Georgiana's gorgeous Chanel cuff, and you can see that powerful photo of her aunt, Helen Hayes. 
That's at ctpublic.org slash audacious. All right. Now, what's it like to have been Georgiana's appraiser, to have done the research, to have given such good news? And what's the life of an appraiser like? Laura Woolley is the president of the Collector's Lab, appraising properties in the world of pop culture, celebrity, and entertainment. She's been devoted to this field since 1997, so she's seen a lot. I wanted to know, when she's figuring out how much a thing may be worth, how much is it the thing? Like, you know, she can confirm that there are diamonds and jewels in that cuff and do the math. And how much of the value is in the story of the thing? With something that valuable and full of precious materials that's intrinsically valuable, it's really the price that you put out there. The 100 to 150 is what Christie's would put on it if I took it to them because it's a vintage rare piece. Now, do we have every expectation that because of what it is and how rare it is, it would do 250 to half a million dollars? Absolutely. But it's difficult to distinguish the Helen Hayes aspect from the fact that it's the only other one out there known other than uh, Coco Chanel's pair. And funny enough, this didn't make air, but if you look at the pictures of Coco wearing her pair, uh, one is kind of rectangularly kind of symmetrical from left to right. And then the one we had kind of is big in the center and tapered a little bit. Well, hers is a mismatched pair. One of hers tapers and one is the rectangle. So ours actually, or ours, I'm taking ownership. Like I own it. <laughs> Wishful thinking, right? Uh, Georgiana's <laughs> is really actually a better pair to one of Coco Chanel's than Coco's. So it, we don't know when they were making them, if maybe he initially made them both the same and she liked the mismatch kind of asymmetry of it. Who knows? I mean, that's all speculation, but I think the key, what, what was really interesting about the Helen Hayes connection is that you could have someone, it would be incredibly difficult for them to get it past expert eyes and the people who work at Verdure and the archives to get it authenticated for someone to fake it. Although the design is known, hers have been on display at museums. So people may have seen the interior construction um, and it's, it's possible someone could take a stab at it, right? But I think putting it in the context of knowing where it came from and the whole backstory and how every little fact fell into place perfectly for this to be exactly what it is. There's no question this is what it is because it came from her and her husband probably bought it for her in 1930, 31, 32. We don't know what year, but right in the sweet spot when, when you would expect to see it and it's aged perfectly. It's in great shape. Even the box that it was in, which is the only box this woman's ever known. I think that's probably original. It was like the Harlequin silk blue and white box. And it's like, you can't fake that. That's a vintage box. <laughs> now, when you saw this thing, what was that like for you? I immediately, I don't think I've ever been this nervous on camera before in my entire life. I was like, oh my God. I, she pulled it out of the box and I feel like the, it didn't even do it justice because it was sitting there, but I took some of my own pictures afterwards and those Cavachon emeralds looked like there were batteries lighting them up under the sunlight. It was like, oh my God. So she, she pulled it out and I told them all, um, I need to get Kevin Zavian over because he was there that day, one of our jewelry specialists to give this once through because I'm, I'm leaning towards thinking this is right, but we only had a tiny picture that she sent in from her cell phone on her kitchen counter. <laughs> and so I was preparing the whole time to either say it's not or it is and didn't know until that morning. And she pulled it out and Kevin went through it and he kind of looked at me and gave me that look like, uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, this is right. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, Kevin. Oh my God. 
see, I have to imagine like it's electrifying, right? Like yes, you, you want to touch mean, it and then you don't want to touch it. And it's this wonderful tension. I immediately knew how, how many jewelry people would just be freaking out to, to find this, that nobody knew it was out there. See, I want to know, you're standing across from her, right? And you have this big reveal that you have to give. And so you're trying to hold your emotions in, right? Oh, I was bursting at the seams. I Even, even before, uh, when I remember when Sam, the producer, Sam um, Farrell called, because they take our pitches, basically. I mean, this year was interesting since we were doing it remotely. But I remember when he called, he doesn't remember this, but I said, I remember the first thing I said is, if I don't get to do this, I'm going to punch somebody in the face. <laughs> Which definitely would have made the final cut. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. I, I was totally kidding, but that was my, we, we have a good rapport. We're good friends. And I was kind of my way of saying, this is like the best thing ever. <laughs> so I was just like, we, we have to do this. Like, there's no question that this is just, it's amazing. And I was even telling him the story because I was so excited to be able to relate how all the dates lined up and how we know the studio shut down and it's not signed and everything's right and how rare it was. And I was just like, uh, I think he was a little nervous because I didn't sound very coherent. I was bl bl like blathering so much stuff at him. It was like, and then, and then Helen was and Coco Chanel did some movies in Hollywood in 1931. And I think they may have met. <laughs> so he was kind of like, okay, uh, you're going to have to really streamline this story. I was like, I know I will, but I was just so excited. And that's exactly how I felt that day. It was like walking in there, just kind of knowing some of the things I wanted to hit, but I did try to lead her to believe that it was not right. It was all fake. I mean, faux stones. I'll put it that way. Cause I, I was really going down the costume track uh -huh. pretty heavily until the end. And so I did ask her, I said, did you think I was going to say it was costume? And she said, yeah, for a while there, I did. Like, I, I, that's kind of what I was trying to do to throw her off the trail a little bit. But nice. even if it were costume, it would have sold probably for $100,000 or more. I mean, that's, that's the way it goes in the costume world because it's so rare. Huh. When you got to utter the words 100 to 150,000, you know, I, I putting myself in your shoes as I like to imagine it, like you're rooting for her. You know, this is such a cool story. It's such a beautiful bracelet with so much meaning and history. And you're about to give her this gift. So what did it feel like when you said those words? I love telling people who don't know. Coming from a world where I work in the auction business and deal with a lot of jaded dealers and collectors who are spending money like drunken sailors half the time on stuff to be able to kind of do what we do, but then deliver it to people who really are people who aren't jaded or people who uh, I think are much more appreciative uh, of, of hearing these things. Sometimes people can be combative when you deliver <laughs> pricing information. A lot of times with, with appraisal clients, like we get into it almost not an argument, but a disagreement over they thought it was going to be worth more or uh, you know, something like that. So, so to have someone who really walks in there with no expectations, that is really just such a gift for us. It's like Christmas delivering news like that to someone. And I didn't have to spend any money for it. <laughs> Just my time. <laughs> they care about each other. Good news is sweeping across the country. Good news is spreading all around. Good news is hitting in the city. Good news is sprung up in the town. Now you specialize in, of course, pop culture, celebrity, and entertainment stuff. And I'm thinking that you probably come across a lot of pieces that are really only valuable, like truly only valuable because they belonged to someone famous. Can you tell us about any examples about that? 
Yeah, actually, uh, it's funny. This is what I'm racing to get through right now. And I just saw an email pop up from the client asking, how are you coming? Um, I'm working on all of the Tupac stuff that's on view right now in downtown Los Angeles. They just opened a big exhibit called Wake Me When I'm Free. And they're putting a lot of his stuff into context with his life and, and you know, how, how he grew up and where a lot of these things came from. And the bulk of what I'm working on at this moment exactly is, are his lyrics. And, and that to me is a great example in my world of things that are completely valueless intrinsically. It's a piece of paper. And then you look at, well, it's the first verse of California love and you're seeing the work, you're seeing the phrases he, he crossed out. To me, that's more interesting almost than the stuff that made it into the song is to see where he toned it down a little, which is hard to believe for Tupac, <laughs> but he did sometimes. Um, and he would have multiple versions of the songs, like the explicit version and the clean version. So he was writing it already knowing that he would have to produce two different versions for radio. And to me, paper is, is just the most interesting thing that takes 100% of its value from what, what's written on it. Another thing that's, that's also um, intrinsically really not that valuable, but takes on a, a wide spectrum of values once you stick it into context with celebrities are Clothing, obviously. You look at the, the Biggie crown that sold at Sotheby's for $594,000. It was a plastic crown, but it was in that photograph, which is the most enduring image we have of him. And so that takes it to a, such a completely different level. And people were freaking out that someone paid that much money for a plastic crown. But it's, it's not about the crown. It's what it represents and how instantly recognizable it is. I think that's the key in my world. For you personally, is there, is there an object that you would like? You know, like if I could swing some public radio funds your way and get you whatever you wanted, Yeah. what would that thing be? Well, I know it's out there. I would kill to have the heart that went to the Tin Man because we don't know where it is. It was apparently there was some crew member from The Wizard of Oz who either had a heart attack or had some ailments during the shoot and he was in the hospital and apparently they gave it to him and whereabouts unknown. So um, the courage medal has shown up from the cowardly lion and there really isn't much to show for the brain. Cause that was just a piece of paper, a scroll, but I've, I'm, I don't know why I'm obsessed with the heart from the tin man. I could never afford it if it ever came up. When you talk to people about what you do, what don't they get? When people tell me that they don't get what I do, I always ask them, what's your favorite movie? And this, I, a friend of mine, I was talking to, and they're like, yeah, I don't think I'm really into memorabilia. And I said, what's your favorite movie? And they said, nine to five. And I said, oh, so you wouldn't think it was cool to have the rat poison box sitting on your shelf, just casually there that when people came into your house and said, what's that? Oh, it's the rat poison from nine to five. And they're like, oh my God, that would be so cool. And I was like, see, everybody's got something. There's a way in, in my world for just about everybody, which I don't think you can say for every other collecting category. So if you're like the world's greatest 19th century French furniture expert, there's probably not a way in for everybody. You might be able to talk them into your world, but they're not going to, you can't have a conversation where you just go, oh, well, you know, like that Louis the 14th Versailles Ormolu table. Isn't that great? And they're not going to say, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so easily relatable. I feel like what I do that, um, you know, maybe Tupac's not your thing, but maybe Bette Midler is. Or maybe you don't like this, but there's something for everybody, really, because that's why there's entertainers. Especially if it's Dolly Parton, because Dolly Parton's the only thing any of us can agree on. Yeah, <laughs> 
isn't that true? She's kind of like Switzerland. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I, I always say that the less you have to explain an object to someone, the more it's worth. <sighs> so again, biggie crown, if that's sitting on your shelf and you have that photo sitting right next to it and someone walks into your apartment and they walk in and they go, holy that's Biggie's crown. You don't have to say a word, literally. It just visually, immediately, you know what it is. Same with um, so many key props from films. And now the key is, are they real? Same with the Ruby slippers. So I used to say the top three are Ruby slippers, Rosebud and Maltese Falcon. And these days people have actually said to me, what's Rosebud? (laughs) So that hurts my heart a little bit. Yeah. But mine would be the giant condoms from Naked Gun. You know what? It makes me think about like Naked Gun, uh, Police Academy, like uh, any, well, I guess any Leslie Nielsen movie. So prop heavy. They do not make movies like that anymore. I would love to have the stuffed beaver up on my library shelf. And again, (laughs) all you'd have to say. What's that? Oh, it's my beaver. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) $100 million. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, we have covered a lot of ground, but is there anything that you want to make sure we put to air? Yeah. I, you know what? One thing I would say that I feel like is kind of a misconception in my world is that the only things that get the big headlines are the $6.6 million Kurt Cobain guitar and, and things like that. But we really do have things at different price points that can make someone just as excited as someone buying a $10 million painting. I, I've seen people cry touching a $500 item just because it was something that belonged to someone they loved. So like it, it, it is such a deep and visceral connection that people have to these things. And that is why they collect things that belong to famous people from their favorite movies. We're touching nostalgia. We're touching their childhood. And it doesn't have to be an extraordinary thing. It just needs to be sometimes something that that person touched or that was in their house. And it means so much to somebody. Well, Laura Woolley, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Laura Woolley is the president of the Collector's Lab. She's been appraising properties in the world of pop culture, celebrity, and entertainment since 1997. After the break, come with me to get my cool, weird typewriters appraised. Ben Oliver number five is probably made in around 1890 to 1910, somewhere like that. I'd love to rather than sell it now. <laughs> okay. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Antique appraisals are, pardon the wordplay, a fine art. Your family heirloom may be not at all what you thought it was. I have to tell you, I wish I could tell you good news. I, I think this is a complete fake. Really? I think somebody made this to deceive. No kidding. That was a clip from PBS's Antiques Roadshow. On the other hand, your item may really be worth something. If you're going to insure it, I would insure it for at least $1 million. Are you serious? I wanted to know what my two very strange typewriters were worth, so I went to Antiques on the Farmington. 
in Collinsville, Connecticut, with audacious producer Jessica Severin D. Martinez. Scott Cunningham, who's run the place since 1991, agreed to check out my typewriters. But first, he sat down with me in the middle of this old axe factory to help me understand how appraisals work. Okay, so when someone comes in and they have an object, and there's, you know, you look at it, maybe you know right away or via your searching that it's worth something. But the person has like a really moving story or it belongs right. to a great-grandfather who was a veteran of World War I. How much does the story behind the object factor into how much it's worth? <laughs> well, it certainly makes it interesting. But it's also just like with the Roadshow, you know, people that have gotten used to watching that, you know, they start to think that their stuff is like so incredibly valuable. And so that's, that's the challenge is to cut, you know, come up with a, a area where I know I could sell it for a decent price and, and they, you know, they feel like they're fairly treated, you know, and I can't say that a lot of people aren't a little disappointed, you know. For one thing, values have cha changing all the time. You know, things like collectibles, like say up on the while there are all those uh, world um, figurines and, and jugs, they once went for three or four times what they're going for now, like 25 years ago. Huh. So you know, people got into collections and you know they spent all this money all this time and now they just don't carry the same value. And I have people come in almost every day. They have an idea what may, something may be worth, but of course that doesn't work unless, you know, I can get in the middle of that and, and make some money. So That's the idea. Yeah. Is there anything someone ever brought into the shop that was, I want to say, inappropriate, but that's, on, that's in the eye of the beholder, and this, the name of this show is Audacious, so I'm not sure what my listeners may think is inappropriate, but like, do people ever bring in weird stuff and you're like, I'm not going to buy this? What do you think? Yeah, definitely. Well, things, I mean, in this sensitive day and age, obviously, there are certain <laughs> themes that are, uh, you know, taboo or very difficult, like, um, I don't want to get, in case this dealer I mentioned, I don't want to say exactly what, but he had some artifacts that were sort of dated to the slave trade, and, uh. you know, um, you know, it came in some way, people, that, some of my dealers that work here pointed it out to me, I had to make him take, take it out, and uh, it's funny, black memorabilia is another area that's kind of in between. For, for years, a lot of um, African Americans, they collected all that stuff from the 20s and 30s. Now it's kind of become a little more taboo, probably. And Holocaust-type stuff, too. Right. You know, that's also definitely taboo. So Nazi, how do you Nazi figure stuff. that out? Because, like, I was recently, I saw on my Instagram stories, a friend of mine who's a black woman was posting, you know, uh, what it's like as a black woman to go antiquing and, and immediately... <laughs> and it, you know, plays this horrible music under these, you know, stereotypical these exaggerated black faces and it's like this nightmare for her um, and that's real like so how when you have memorabilia like that you have some Nazi memorabilia uh, not memorabilia about slavery like how what do you do with that I just really don't allow it in the shop now yeah. last thing in the world I want to do is, is uh, you know incense anybody and some of the dealers you know they get offended because the whole idea you know same thing with confederates I mean it is history it's American history how can you just like all of a sudden forget that these things are part of history you know so that's kind of a fine line these days maybe we should walk around and yeah, sure. just mosey and see what we see Sounds and then good. I can pepper you with questions yeah, especially if I run into a very interesting pepper shaker <laughs> thank you I'm, I'm gonna be here all day oh that's funny I have glasses similar to this <laughs> 
That's Ruby Flash, that's what those are called. Huh, although these are in much better condition. The ruby tends to, to wear on those type of glasses. Yeah. It's, it's the best thing is to use them. Yeah, you, you touch on a, an interesting point that on the one hand, like use your stuff, don't right. hold back. Can't take it with you, but also preserve your stuff so it lasts longer. And that's you know, that's I mean, so many things like that. So many collections like, you know, the vintage toys, for example, mm. you know, they were so great growing up. I had tons of those things. Um, but people now, they want them in the box, the original box, and they don't ever take them out of the box. <laughs> so Same what's the thing point? with a lot of dolls too, you know? Yeah. Like Barbies and other things. That's where the value was, Cabbage Patch, all that stuff. I guess you mm. have to have some sort of emotional detachment. It has to just not be about the enjoyment at all. <laughs> and it's just like anything, like real estate that you don't really care about. It's right. just for the money. I suppose. Yeah. Well, what do you say we look at some typewriters? Okay, sure. Cool. All right, so. Oh boy. I brought these in because they're weird. I love typewriters and I've been um, collecting them and I got rid of the ones that were boring. These are cool. This Oliver. Yeah, this uh, is a this, really good one. Oh, I like this tone of voice that you have. Um, this typewriter, the strikers come from the side. Right. As opposed to from below. And so what, what's, what's going through your mind as you look at it? It's an Oliver number five. I know because it says it on there. Okay, and Oliver number five is probably made around 1890 to 1910, somewhere in that, that neighborhood. And uh, I'd love to grab it and sell it. No. <laughs> okay. I've got two down in the basement that are kind of like that, but they need to be completely restored. Yeah, these are not restored. These yeah. are dusty. Well, and... But these are at least somewhat functional. I mean, it, yeah, obviously you have to get a ribbon and, and everything else mm -hmm. like that. But I mean, the fact that the, the uh, Keys work pretty well. It's a good sign. It's a very good sign. So it wouldn't take much to, to fix this one up. So if I wanted to sell this, I, I'm I'm down on my luck. I need the money. What would I do? How how what would you do? So I would venture to say this would probably go for about 100 to 150. Okay. You know, again, without looking up the specific model, some of them are rarer than others. So I would. Like I like to make 100%, you know, right, of I'd do about half of what I think I could get for it. And of course, I got to figure in the dicker factor, you know, the, what the, factor? the, the uh, dickering factor, you know, of price, you know, what I have it out there for and what actually somebody I, I can get for because, you know. Yeah. All that, Someone's got to come in here and be like, uh, I got to spend money on this right now. Right. People do like the really old type of this. Yeah. And I don't have any, like, you know, like either one of these right now because they just move, they move out of here right away. Good to know. Pretty much. So the Smith Premier Typewriter number 10, again, I can tell that it's number 10 because it says yeah. so on there and it's missing a little thing on the bottom so it tilts. And what's cool about this typewriter and why I kept it was that it was before, this is the story I tell myself, it was before they figured out the shift key. So there's lines of the uppercase and there's lines of the lowercase. Wow, case. that really is cool. So this Definitely. is the stuff you want to hear from I've the guy who's looking before. at you. You've no. never seen this before. Nope. Okay. And this is, so this is before Smith Corona came into being. So that's, um, that's I'm not sure what the, what the history is at, but that's, it's rare to see a Smith. Um, they're usually Smith Coronas. So. so how would you handle this? Something you don't know, you'd have to probably well, Google it. Like. Yeah, Google it. Yeah. Basically, 
Check what's going for on eBay, although things like this is a little hard to tell with eBay because these are, these are fairly rare. So somebody could be asking 500 or somebody could be asking 50. Right. And you just never know. Yeah. Um, no, these are really, definitely really cool ones. Thanks. A lot of people buy, you know, the typewriters from the 30s, 40s, 50s to actually use them. You know, and these are more like collectors, you know, these are like shelf pieces that, you know, you could honestly want to fix them to use them, but really they're, it's just a charm, like our old um, 1914 cash register there. Yes, you're so very we really use that one loud and beautiful cash register. Yeah, it's definitely something that I just, I look at it and I smile. I think it's a feat of engineering that I really enjoy. I love that these are, there's no microchips. It's just right. mechanics. Exactly. Yeah. Scott Cunningham, thanks for having us. Oh, you're welcome. I know you want to see pictures of my super cool typewriters and the rest of our adventure at Antiques on the Farmington. So it's a good thing that our photojournalist Tyler Russell was there to take them for you. Check them out at ctpublic.org slash audacious. And as if you didn't have enough reasons to subscribe to our podcast, do yourself a favor and check out my conversation with Eric Hanks, only available on the podcast stream. Eric is an appraiser and gallery owner and specializes in African-American art. Just look up Audacious wherever you get your podcasts. This show is always lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Special thanks to Hannah Auerbach at PBS, who helped us coordinate the meetings with the folks at Antiques Roadshow. And thanks to our own Beth Messina for inspiring us to do this show in the first place. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening, and happy antiquing. Thank you.